Michelle Pfeiffer. Michelle Pfeiffer. Michelle Pfeiffer. Michelle Pfeiffer. Well, uh, Mr. Pfeiffer. It's a fraud. Basically just a big Ponzi scheme. What's a Ponzi scheme? What are we gonna do? 50 million? 50 billion with a B. Mom, do you understand what he's done? It's the same. I'm tired of being hated. You got yourself into trouble. You couldn't get out. Why does the world hate me? They all think I'm some kind of a mastermind. Take it as a compliment, Ruth. You were never suspicious of your father? If you're asking me how I didn't know, you're the FBI. How did you not know? Sir! Hello, everyone, and welcome to Pfeiffer Fridays, where we walk you through the films of one Michelle Pfeiffer, and every F-word automatically has a silent P. I'm Jerry Downey. And I'm Michael McLean. And today we are covering 2017's The Wizard of Lies, starring Robert De Niro, Alessandra Nivola, Hank Azaria, Nathan Darrow, Lily Rabe, Kristen Connolly, and of course, La Pfeiffer as Ruth Madoff. So Michael, was this your first watch of Wizard of Lies? No, this is actually my second watch. Um, This came during the time when HBO was putting out Big Little Lies, I believe. I think it was, I forget which came first, um, but this was in the, their, their big TV project of this year. But of course this got really overshadowed by Big Little Lies. And so I remember at the time this being a catch up moment because it's like, hey, well, I finished Big Little Lies. Oh, I got to watch that Wizard of Lies movie that came out as well. Just kind of got buried underneath all the excitement from that show. So I saw it really a while after it came out. And I remember liking it at the time. I didn't really know much about the ins and outs of this awful scandal. Didn't really know. I knew the headlines, of course, but not the ins and outs. And now watching it again today, I felt like I understood a lot more about it this time, maybe because I'm watching it again. So I know the beats and what happens, but I feel like I understood it more, whether that's a bad thing or a good thing. I feel like I did understand a lot more of maybe just some of these characters this time around about maybe why Bernie did this. What is he trying? What was he trying to do? I feel like I understood a little bit more this time. I think maybe that's just because on a second watch, you pick up more. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah, you though, was this, this is your first, right? It is. This, this was my first time watching this and thinking back on it as you were talking, I, I feel like this was the exact same mentality I had for the other major De Niro Pfeiffer star, the family, where I was just like, I'll watch this eventually. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Just because it was one of those that, like you said, this this was kind of high prestige TV season, especially for actresses, which I'm, you know, for both of us is kind of a huge passion thing. And, you know, not only did you have Big Little Lies, you had Feud, Betty and Joan, which I was That's right. very much up my, up my alley in terms of TV was that show. So... Yeah, this was one of those where I remember the trailer not doing much for me, aside from being excited that Michelle Pfeiffer had an upcoming project. But 
like you, when, when a majority of this was happening, I was just starting college. Mm -hmm. So aside from the headlines and the names, just not a whole lot of knowledge of what was going on in that environment. So it just didn't really have a big draw for me to put on. And unlike the Oscars where you sort of play catch up with with some movies this one just sort of fell off my radar because I don't feel like I followed the Emmys with the same passion of, of trying to find all the all the nominees and, and watch you know every tv movie that came out that year it just doesn't have the same drive for me so yeah this one fell off the radar until today yeah this is what's so tough with especially the Emmys because you end up having so much more to watch then the Oscars, it becomes a bit of a, you, you just can't possibly catch up with everything. Right. It's much easier with Oscars. So yeah, it was definitely one for me where it's like, oh, I just viewed, I forgot about Feud, Betty and Joan. I was like, that, I, that was definitely more what I was catching up on with Big Little Lies than this. I was like, I know Big Little Lies and Betty and Joan, those are the big ones. I don't need to worry about Little Wizard of Lies over here. Yeah, it's it, it's also one of those things that uh, with Big Little Lies, especially you have sort of that week, week by week thing yeah. where you're you're ready for it and you're tur- you're tuning in at that specific time. And with Wizard of Lies, it releases. And if you have that mentality of, oh, that looks good, like I'll put it on eventually, 60, 40 chance that happens with, yeah. within a, a defined period of time. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, so we were both very... We were much younger when this when this when this scandal happened back in two thousand eight, high school college. Like we said, we were not. This didn't affect me in any way. I mean, the the crash of two thousand eight definitely did. My dad did end up losing his job over it. I think my mom was kept on at her job when so many other people around her did get let go. She was able to stay. So that's how I remember that moment in time was this very strange, you know, oh, dad doesn't have a job. Oh, mom has the job, but then her best friend doesn't have the job. Like two of her best friends were let go at work. So it was a very strange moment in time when for up until then, you know, dad had, dad was mainly the one that kind of went from job to job sometimes with finding positions, but it never felt like, never felt precarious in any way. Remember 2008 feeling like, oh, this feels a little bit different right now. Yeah. And I mean, both my parents were teachers, so that, yeah, that wasn't something that impacted them in terms of their jobs really. So aside from, like I said, aside from headlines and names, because the scandal was that big where you certainly heard the names, there wasn't a lot of impact on me personally especially when you look at the people who were personally impacted by this via the the tv movie and yeah i didn't really it it just felt so far removed i have to say from my life that this watching this movie was really was informative and i think that's what the movie sets out to do is really to explore the situation and try and get inside the head of these people. So for like a lay person like me who doesn't, who didn't really follow the story of, of the Madoff 
Ponzi scheme, it was informative for me at least. Yeah, I, yeah. I would agree with that. I certainly learned more than I knew mm -hmm. just because it, it does lay out point by point what occurred sort of leading up to his arrest through the court case. So yeah, it is, it is there to inform and at minimum it does do that. I guess for me, I question some of the focus yeah. of, of it because I can't, it feels indecisive at points to me in terms of the story it's trying to tell because mm -hmm. every time I feel like it goes on a certain track, it deviates. So I wasn't sure if it was just trying to tell us solely about the scandal but then it also really wants to be a portrait of Madoff himself thus the title of the movie but then also really wants to you know again that trolley sort of goes on a different track to be a family drama as well before pitching back to just being a plot by plot retelling of the scandal it feels like it's trying to accomplish three separate things but doesn't really coalesce into one fully formed movie in terms of its storytelling yeah maybe it would have benefited from a, an episodic format where we could spend time on the man himself spend time on the family spend time on how he created this ponzi scheme maybe it could have benefited from just more time to explore but i agree for like a tv movie format it's trying to do everything. <laughs> it's trying to do everything, you know? Yeah, I don't know. It, fe it feels like they were really trying to put everything into one basket instead of choosing one focus. But I also, I don't, I don't think I would have wanted to watch an episodic format of this story. It would have been too, a little bit too grim or what do you think it would have been for you? I don't know if it would have been too Graham, I think I, I think it would have been easier to just watch a docu series if you were going to do that. Oh, sure. For yeah. some reason, I think this is one of those where I would really lose interest if it were longer, because there were already some parts of this movie that my interest waned hmm. a bit. So having it be six hours instead of two, I probably would have been like, I'm. I'm good, y'all. I'm yeah. I'm fine. Do do we want to do a little mini synopsis of this one? Yeah, we can. So it's directed by Barry Levinson of Rain Man, The Natural Diner, Wag the Dog fame. One of the three writers is his son, and it is adapted from the the book the wizard of lies right right by diana henricks who is playing herself and acting with a capital a so that so that is the framing device is it's based on her book you see her in prison interviewing robert de niro playing bernie madoff and so via That's, that that must but, have been strange you know you've already done this once interviewing the real man in jail and then you're interviewing, basically then redoing your experience with an actor 
Yeah, very meta. Very interesting. So then you basically have a, a rundown of this whole Ponzi scheme scandal and how it impacts the Madoff family. So you have a few flashbacks just to sort of see the dysfunctional family dynamic because you have that company party on Montauk. You have the crash, the, the Black Monday crash and how that impacts everything sort of leading up to his sons turning him in or in his words, him turning himself in and how that affects him to a lesser degree. That's when it really turns into how it impacts his wife, Michelle Pfeiffer and his two sons played by Alessandra Nivola and Nathan Darrow. Mm-hmm. And you go through the court case, you go through both of his sons dying not not long after one hangs himself the other dies from cancer not long after that and then his wife Ruth cutting him off and then we circle circle back he's received his essentially life sentence in prison and he looks in the camera and basically asks the audience do you think I'm a sociopath and roll credits mm-hmm. S- straightforward just very straightforward synopsis which is oddly not very straightforward in the movie itself just based on how I I guess just how it's plotted the way it goes about where these flashbacks are interspersed while also still being part of an original flashback because of this framing device is very muddy for Mm -hmm. me I feel like that's the one thing maybe of keeping that trolley on the one track is making this a more linear storyline. Because, yeah, what I, I remember, I forgot that it started with him admitting that he was doing a Ponzi scheme. Is it doing a Ponzi scheme? Is that the verb you would use? Like, I'm running, running a Ponzi scheme. <laughs> We've never done one before. so <laughs> Yeah, we don't know the intricacies of this. <laughs> yeah. Um, so the movie starts with you know, this framing device of Diana Hendricks saying, asking, I think like what happened or is that how the movie starts or is it, now I can't even remember. <laughs> but it just, it's very strange that, okay, the movie, it's like, okay, we're in a, we're in, we're in this framing device and then we go to the day it all falls apart and then we go back some more <laughs> to we're just going back and forth and yeah I would agree with you it does take a second to be like okay where are we in this timeline right there are sometimes you're exactly right where you're just like okay I th- is this press is this happening after he was arrested or are we are we back bef- what where where is this happening and luckily you're able to kind of keep track of presence because through kind of the girlfriends and children. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That helps, that helped me keep track of, okay, we're back to the present day because there's the Lily rave. So we have to be in present day now. But yeah, but luckily they have those, those little markers that will come up being like Montauk, summer of this, of this year. And, but you do have to keep track, you know, this all happened in 2008. 
right or else i feel like to me that would have gotten me off track if i hadn't clocked the year that this happened i'd just been like oh wait when was that montauk party when was this oh so november 2008 is right before so it's it, it is a little muddy i think if you're not paying attention you could easily lose track of where you are i think what i noticed this time was i did focus more on bernie and ruth and just they're just them as a couple it's so interesting how he was immediately just the breadwinner, the caretaker, the protector in their relationship. Maybe that's the time period that they met in, you know, that is such the, that is probably what happened is just society at the time, she fell, Ruth fell into her role and Bernie fell into his. And it was all about, and it wasn't all about, it was about keeping his family safe. I'm thinking about how with Ruth this time, how she, is so isolated within that world of their penthouses and their summer homes and her confidence that money is coming in and Bernie is doing a good job. And how, when it all comes crashing down, she has, she has nothing. She has no friends of her own that aren't friends she made through Bernie's company. Can she even go get a, she can't get a job right now. She can barely, she can't even go get her, get her hair done in New York City. That was really interesting this time to see how much he kept her afloat. And once that life raft was taken away, she just completely sinks to the bottom. Yeah, there's a definite sense that she is only known for being Bernie Madoff's wife. Mm-hmm. So when that becomes a bad thing, it inevitably takes her with it. Yeah. Because she is not functional without being associated with him. Yeah. Which, which can be said very similarly for what his two sons go, go through mm-hmm. here as well. Anybody that is closely associated with him and for this movie's references that mainly sticks to his family you're you're an accomplice you're com- you're complicit in all of this there's no getting away from that and i think that's i think that is probably the one thing that i wish had been a little bit more deeply explored mm-hmm. here is the complicity because all we really see from ruth and mark and andrew the two sons are them saying that they're not yeah and that that is the decision that this movie has made is to go with what Madoff himself said which is he basically acted alone and throughout this entire thing every step he took was in order to protect his family should he go down Mm -hmm. and I and I guess you respond to that based on how much you believe that take that you can work for this organization for however long and benefit from that without thinking something is amiss and I wish that that especially when they go into what those three peripheral characters are dealing with I wish that they had gone a bit more especially in the flashbacks of showing us how they avoided this or how they dealt with this I think the closest we get is when Andrew and Mark are confronting him at that Montauk beach party 
where it feels like they're getting a sense of something's off. We don't know what it is and we're not entirely sure that it's illegal or even unethical, but you're not telling us something and that's weird to us. Because he's avoiding the topic of succession. He's, it's amazing how he wants to keep his family so close by making them a part of the company and giving them stakes and shares in it. I guess it was a way for them to the way he could keep their trust and keep them happy and complicit in their own way through just kind of always having money at, at their fingertips, using greed to keep them in. I mean, Michelle has a lot of very strong scenes in this one, but I thought some of the most, one of the most interesting ones she had was when she's going through her, her jewelry before she decides that she's going to kill herself that actually happened yeah yeah that yes i don't like the fever dream segment of that whole yeah very mother isn't it episode i was just like we don't we don't need this this regardless i thought that what she was saying and how she was playing it was very interesting because she starts off very upset about basically being called complicit that Mm -hmm. she she had to have known but why would they say that like I didn't do that and when he starts to say you're right you had nothing to do with this she's like well I did help you do the books that once like don't don't say I never helped and it's this it's Mm -hmm. this very give and take thing where she's it it almost took her in sort of a Lady Macbeth direction which I think could have been an interesting take for yeah. her but again they they have very much leaned into this thing of of Ruth not not knowing but the stuff that was coming out of her mouth I thought was very interesting and could have been a more interesting direction for that character sort of taking her out of just being the wife was having a little more ambiguity about that and that was the one scene that sort of took it in that direction of oh well I did help you with the books that one time Mm -hmm. because some of the flashbacks you see Ruth around these donors like yeah you you very rarely get a sense of if she ever helped helped with the talking helped with the schmoozing and in any way form or fashion to where she was even unknowingly helping land these these um investors for him and I think that makes her an ultimately more fascinating character for a drama involving actors rather than a docuseries Mm -hmm. is to give her a little bit more of that ambiguity I think it I think it just makes it more more interesting yeah because we do get a lot of her just repeating over and over why are they saying that why does the world hate me I'm not the Bonnie and Clyde in this situation. I'm not the Bonnie in the Bonnie and Clyde situation. They're they're pinning on me. Right. That Bonnie killed people. I didn't do anything. But like you said, there are those moments. I think you're talking about the donors. It's right at like like a month before the scheme falls apart. It's after the crash. And I think Bernie, I believe he was trying to, to drum up more collateral, I think, taking a lot of phone calls with various people with just shit ton of money and 
I think it's at a holiday party and Ruth is in a shot holding onto an arm of one of the donors, a really okay. old man. And when you said that about the ambiguity, it's like, well, what if that was something? Could she have played her part there where she maybe oils this donor up and Bernie just sticks the landing? Who knows? Right. But a shot like that, where she's kind of holding on to this man's arm, helping him to the table, sitting by him. Yeah, you know, there is a little bit of, and what was her, what was her relationship like with the wives of these donors? Could she have planted, you know, her own seeds in the ears of the wives who could then pass along something to their husbands? I think that could have been very interesting to explore. And I think only Bernie gets that kind of ambiguity. And even I think a little bit, I saw a little bit that you could mine from. And even then, I think that's just because they are painting him as the grifter that he was. Mm-hmm. So I don't, I, I don't necessarily know that I think that character is ambiguous because we are told from the start that he's charming and that you should not believe a goddamn word that comes out of his mouth. Mm-hmm. So even though he's saying all these things that sound very natural and charming and factual we're told from the get do not trust him yeah so i think that ambiguity is a little shot on that front as well because he's the bad guy and he is Mm -hmm. the stated up front there is no waffling on this he is a bad person Mm -hmm. but like i said i still think I still think Michelle is doing a really excellent job at just being the wife. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I do think she's elevating a lot of rather repetitive scenes. Mm -hmm. Another small thing that stuck out to me that I thought was very interesting and I wish we could have seen more of was at that Montauk Beach party when she's talking to Mark's wife and then the lily rave character who will eventually be andrew's wife she asks about lily rave's child and it's just like oh but you have that you didn't marry the father right mm-hmm. and then follows it up with if i had ever had a baby out of wedlock my father would have taken me out back and shot me actually shot me yeah. and it's really unveiled nastiness in that comment and her tone and it's little, it's little things like that where I was just like, they could have let her be so much more interesting mm-hmm. than she is. And mm-hmm. they keep showing these. I, I think her most interesting stuff is when she's not with Bernie. I think that's where they allow her to sort of fall into a trope and don't really help her dig herself out of that hole. She's sort of left to her own devices. Mm-hmm. But some of the phone calls she makes to the boys when they cut her off mm-hmm. are really wrenching. Um, like that last one where they're sort of showing shots of her leaving a voicemail to, I think, to Andrew. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you sort of see cuts interspersed of the boys and their wives listening to her as she's leaving this voicemail. And there's this line she says where she it's almost like she's finally admitting it to herself as well, well, where she just says, I'm not as brave as you two. 
Mm-hmm. And it, it that one just hits exactly the right way where you feel very sorry for this person you probably shouldn't. Yeah. And I liked those moments a lot. I thought she had a few of those, but that was the one that stuck with me most just because it didn't, it was the one thing that didn't involve her privilege because mm-hmm. she, ha- she had a few of those when she's looking for her lighter and slamming the drawers after she gets kicked out of the hair salon, which you're just kind of like, I can't feel badly for you because you can't get a haircut. Yeah. I will. I can't allow myself to feel badly for you in yeah. this situation. But that that voicemail is very much about her relationship with her children mm-hmm. and how they've basically cut her off entirely because she refuses to stop visiting their father. And I feel like that that was a really good showcase for her that sort of took her out of that just big air quotes wife. Mm-hmm. archetype yeah that was a really good scene I wrote down I think of a line she had earlier how he's my whole memory I don't know anything else and she says this while she's roaming around almost like a cage she has the windows drawn in this penthouse apartment she's just aimlessly wandering you know she can't find anything in her own house and that's where that's what made me feel really sad for her made me sympathize with her because I certainly didn't feel one lick of pity for her as she's getting she's getting just cold cocked in an elevator by this little this little girl or getting turned away to a hair salon but I did feel for her in this fact that she doesn't have anything else to in her life now I did think it was very interesting that the the last scene she really has sort of put in words what I had noticed about her for the entire movie. It's where she she's seeing Bernie for the last time and says that she can never forgive him, but she's also not angry. And that was one th- interesting thing I noticed is that never once do you see her angry. And I feel like there are a lot of moments where there could have been a a lot of yelling from her, especially because, like we said, with this sort of belief system in place that Ruth had no knowledge of this and is innocent bystander, you certainly see a lot of rage coming from the sons. Yeah. And you never see that from Ruth. I don't think she ever really raises her voice above a loud speaking voice. There's nothing shouting there's no yelling from her it's just sort of very restrained anger Mm -hmm. or just really world-weary resignation Mm -hmm. and I thought that was that was very interesting because a lot of the dialogue she has I think could really have lent itself to a more bombastic reading if she had wanted to and she never does I thought I remembered more yelling and screaming about what happened, but there is, I thought, it's like there has to be a scene in here where she just tears him a new one for everything that he's done, but no, and again, it's like, well, I think it is the resignation, you know, you know, she's like, well, this is it, but 
you're like, did, what, did you see it coming? Did you, what, you kind of think it's like, if there's no anger there, do you, that you think would can justifiably be there in this situation, then why isn't there any, is it, yeah, it, it plays on maybe what you, like, what did you know that in that case, or is it just, that wasn't who Ruth was, she wasn't one to get, it seems in interviews, I've, I've looked at this 60 Minutes interview that they show a clip of in the film itself. And, you know, Michelle really gets the Ruth Madoff's voice down. It's kind of amazing how she's got that long, that I don't know what is it, I don't know if it's just New York or Long Island, but it's just, it's very this, a little bit of like, I'm watching you, Wazowski, like a little bit more nasal. Yeah. Could have gotten Roz from Monsters, Inc. But she nails that, but watching, the real Ruth in interviews, she's just kind of sitting there, just kind of like a deflated balloon. It's like, I had no idea. I had no idea. It it just feels like maybe still like even a little bit of shell shock still. Maybe yeah, it could be read yeah. as that. I don't know. Just because of some of the flashbacks, because they they really do start off the movie by showing Bernie as more of a charmer but the more family flashbacks you go back to, they make sure to show you that he was an asshole, yeah. particularly to his family behind closed doors. Mm-hmm. And so you almost wonder if for the way they wrote that character, if she sees any point, you know, this has happened. There's no escaping it, especially once she realizes, like you said, she has no friends. She, she has their apartment, probably not for much longer. Yeah. So what what do you do? She's not going to win anything. Uh, yeah. Cuz yeah, that's the other thing she says in that in that last scene with him is that she says I don't see much of a future for me. And that's that's true. She she goes to her sisters in Boca Raton and that's that's that. Mhm. But yeah, I I did like this Michelle performance again because mm-hmm. I think she's she's bringing a lot of her skill set to what I feel is an underwritten role. Mm-hmm. But I still liked it. I mm-hmm. think it's a good performance from her. Yeah, I would agree. It is a lot of those scenes, especially, are just it's the same questions she's asking over and over again. So, you know, how many more times can you? Can we watch her just, you know, be upset that she's being vilified for this? But, you know, she sticks the characterization and she, yeah, does bring um, a lot of really different, a lot of nice shades to it. Because, yeah, I think it definitely absolutely, like, out of all the women in the movie, she gets the most. Unfortunately, all the women are just sidelined to being their tropes. Yes. So, and it's, she at least gets a little bit more, but... Well, it's, it's consistent and it is once again a, a, something different for her. Like even if it is a, a tropish role, it's still not something we've seen from her because this, I guess the closest would be the family <laughs> in, in terms of yeah. the things she's responding to. Mm-hmm. But it's still very, it's very different. And I think that's probably why I like her performance even more than De Niro, Mm -hmm. who I think is giving a good performance, but 
it's one we've seen from him. Mm -hmm. It doesn't take away from it being a good performance, but it is one where it very, it is very tailored to the dangerous charm De Niro can do still like what he was great at in Goodfellas in the nineties, he can still pull out. Yeah. And he will continue to pull that out. Yeah. Long after this movie. Yeah. Um, My MVP, honestly, I thought Alessandra Nivola was fantastic in this movie. Yeah. Even though I think he is given that the way that role is structured. I mean, I believe that is what happened to, to Mark. It's, a shame it's so sad but the way that it gets so it got so close to me to just being you know just him just clicking through every headline and just going I feel like they 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 just they could have eased off a little bit more with the uh Mark's going crazy Mark's going where he can't stop reading every headline he's flicking the blinds you know he's just I thought that was a little bit too much but I just thought he got some of the best scenes, like the scene yeah. where the FBI is interviewing the sons and he calls, like, he starts going a little intense on on them. I was just like, oh, okay. And then he's the one that really confronts his father at the Montauk Beach party, which I thought was another good scene. But then just the scene of him reading letter his, right his statement yeah to his wife I was just like oh yeah, that was at least my favorite of his yeah he's doing a really great job in this movie mm-hmm. yeah it was very I would have loved more of that I you know, just something about that very kind of specific like talking about that statement scene where he's reading it too I would have liked I don't know how to describe it, but I would have liked more of something like that where it's like a unique it's a way to tell us about this character's headspace without, because to me that told me more than you know, him just yelling at 60 minutes or clicking through headlines. I thought that was a very intriguing way to show what this guy thinks of his father now and how he thinks of himself. Yeah, I, I, wish, that, I wish that they had gone deeper with the main four. Because it's one of those things, I feel like we see this more and more lately, and for some reason they always come even quicker on the heels is, you know, the dramatic adaptation of this scandal that happened two, five, ten years ago. It's just fucking inevitable at this point, which mm-hmm. why we want to relive some of these dramatically is beyond me, but whatever. And so that's my question is, okay, for a majority of these, we lived through them. Why does this need to be made? What, what are you telling us that is new or interesting or worthy of us tuning in to relive this for two and a half hours? Mm-hmm. And I don't think this one quite gets there. Yeah. And so that, yeah. It's it's just that why was why was this necessary? Qu- mm-hmm. question for me and I don't have a very satisfying answer for that in terms of of this one based on what it gives us. No, cuz it's 
because it doesn't give you any kind of catharsis or any kind of, ah, that's it. That's the reason. You kind of have to make a, come up with it yourself. You even have to ask yourself if you think that this man you've just watched is a sociopath. And I think the movie isn't even, it try, I think it frames his behavior in a, I don't know what the word for it is, but it, it uses a lot of, it just uses a lot of like suspense to, as you watch this man figure this out, you know, I'm thinking of the soundtrack below, like the, the drum soundtrack at that party where he's trying to get more money from donors. It almost feels like how, how that, that show Succession feels now. We're kind of watching terrible people make terrible decisions. And it's kind of like, okay, well, who's going to be the least terrible? Or who's going to maybe get caught first? Or it's, it's now where it's kind of feeding into that kind of entertainment value where it's, okay, let's watch this person get their comeuppance, get their, who's going to get on the chopping block first. It's kind of, that's almost what we're entertained by now. And I guess that's why my frustration about the ambiguity comes into play because we're watching people that we probably already think are terrible because of what they have done or what we believe they have done in terms of of Mm -hmm. Ruth, Mark, and Andrew, just that complicity factor. So Mm -hmm. we are going into this thinking that we're already watching something about terrible people. Yeah. Why do I care about watching them do the, the terrible things we already know they did? Yeah. Um, you know, with with succession, there there is that sort of propulsive energy to see who's that that sort of modern day uh palace intrigue feel of who's gonna backstab who first, who's going to come out on top, who's getting this and asking for what. And with this, the setup is simple. Bernie is the bad guy, and Ruth, Mark, and Andrew knew nothing about it, but get the consequences dealt to them and they and they stick to it Mm -hmm. and that just sort of saps a lot of the energy from why do I care yeah because yeah I think he is a sociopath there's not really any there's not really any especially after the movie when that's your final question I'm like I think you've answered it right got it (laughs) Right, because the whole, that last final scene ends with him being bent out of shape because the New York Times published an op-ed comparing him to Ted Bundy. And he says, I didn't chop off people's heads. You know, I didn't kill people. That That's an evil person. Well, in a way he did, if you think about right. it. Right. <laughs> it's just like, well, you did, because they're, you know, we can't blame you for Andrew's cancer, but your son definitely killed himself because of the circumstances you put him in. Not to mention all the people who lost everything they had and who knows how their lives ended. So not the same circumstances in how they were killed, but you answered your own question. And it's, it almost seems like with, with how they're trying to portray Bernie and how we know him to be, is a little bit at cross purposes because it's like, well, I'm thinking about that final scene because you're just, because after sitting through two hours of this, he's saying they just needed a villain. Like, "Mm, I don't know about that, sir, but are you just reaching for justifications at this point? Are you so, can you not even face what you did? 
fully in the face that you have to try to justify it. But even then it's like, I don't, I think the movie's made up its mind about you. I think I know I've made up my mind about you. What's, what, what yeah. other questions do you have to ask? Like, And I, and I think that's the other reason of why we feel so shortchanged by the characterization of Ruth, Mark, and Andrew in terms of the, the depth of them is you never really see Bernie dealing with consequences. They're very straightforward. He gets a life sentence in a very short scene. The, the entire court applauds because he gets sentenced. But you're not seeing him deal with very much because he's in prison. He's behind bars. Yeah. Whereas you see yeah. the actual impact that this has on Ruth and Mark and Andrew's everyday lives that he is sort of away from. And there doesn't seem to be any kind of remorse. I don't know. There's, there doesn't seem to be any kind of remorse or I'm so sorry you're going through this. I wish I could take some of it on for you. It's not fair. I didn't get a lot of that. No. There's no, you know, no one's punching Bernie in the street, you know, uh, no reporters are swarming after him like they do after Ruth, which is one of the more, I think my favorite shot in the whole movie is after Ruth gets out of the elevator to go to the hair salon, she sees that there's photographers in the lobby and she pauses for a second. And then she's like, I got to do it. And so she, she kind of dives head first and the sound of the swarm of reporters following her just incredible sound design. I don't even know how, I don't know if they amped it up or anything, but just how the swarm kind of just symbolizes so much of what the three of them had to do in place of Bernie. Yeah. Well, there's that, it just speaks to the kind of the incompetency of government agencies. You know, the SEC fully had a, they were basically this close to finding, I think the, I think the SEC comes in to investigate Bernie's firm. And I think it's, I think one of the correspondents, I think during the trial says, guys, somebody, Markopoulos, I guess he's part of the SEC. I think he said, um, the no mark, that there's no market variation. You know, I guess to me, it made sense. I'm like, oh yeah, of course. You know, and any, I, I imagine, I know with the stock market, but I imagine that it does go up and down, up and down, up and down. But in Bernie's case, it was just going up and up and up. And that would have been a red flag for me too. And the SEC, they, they never followed up. There was no follow, there was never checking in on those accounts to see what assets were there. It's like, well, you could have found this out much sooner. And talk about hubris on Bernie's side. He's like, well, I gambled. You know, I didn't know if they were going to call or not, but I just, yeah. Cross my fingers. Shot. Yeah. Took a shot. Kind of same thing with his family almost, you know. That was my favorite De Niro scene, which is shocking because like I said, I wasn't a huge fan of the of the framing device of him being interviewed. Mm -hmm. But the scene where she's sort of pushing him about what would have happened to your sons had you died and this had never come to light, they yeah. would have been in your shoes. Because they would have, and he kept saying, no, 
they wouldn't have, I had it all fixed. And she keeps saying, but you didn't because they Mm -hmm. would have taken over the reins and would have been doing your job if you died. And that's the one time where you really see him doing a little bit of math in his head of, oh, maybe I fucked up a little bit. Yeah. And, and, and so I found that to be a very interesting, again, one of those few scenes in this movie where he did have a little bit of ambiguity. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah, there, there's, there's enough of those in this to make it wa- watchable, but it does make you wish there were more. Yeah. Especially when you think of scenes like that Montauk Beach party where you just have Hank Azaria telling a group of douche bros about the four types of vaginas not yeah. the word he uses but also not a word i'm going to say on the podcast yeah and literally describes all four it's not just some thing where he starts talking about like here are the four types of insert word here and then you cut away and get back to the actual story we cut back to him so he can describe all four yeah. and i'm like we want to spend time on this (laughs) i don't give a good goddamn about this why am i listening to him describe this when i could be watching michelle pfeiffer act please move the fuck on yep they just wanted to give hank azaria something to do and if i were hank azaria i should have said let's do something else (laughs) yeah i i could spend my time better elsewhere thank you though let's see i think that's about all i've got about the movie I mean, no wonder he had a back spasm in 2000, all those back spasms. I would have had a, I would have had a full on. If I was him, I would have just healed over so much sooner. I, oh, heart attack central. I can't imagine how he slept at night. Uh-uh. I think I've said all I have about the, the movie itself too. Okay. Which, as, as we said last week, Though Children Nobody Wanted may not have had much awards prestige, this one certainly did. So we get yes, to pull sir. we get to pull that one back into the scope of things because this so got the, Emmy. the Emmys for the first time, as well as welcoming Michelle back to get her seventh Golden Globe nomination and That's first right. one for TV. Yeah. So hopefully not her last with what well, she has coming up. True. I'm definitely not her last Golden Globe nomination up to now because we get to talk about that one uh, next week. Yes. <laughs> so as we sort of kicked around at the top, this one was just a, a season for great female performances. Really was. We were very lucky. Because you had Big Little Lies, you had Feud, Betty and Joan, which basically took up every lead actress category across every yeah. branch. And then you had those same two along with Michelle and sort of a perennial nominee and winner at that point, Regina King for American Crime Story or just American Crime. American. I always get those mixed up, but just, yeah. just American Crime sort of filling out the supporting. Mm-hmm roster which i guess would be my question to you do you feel that michelle is supporting in this or do you think she's lead i mean she's billed as a lead it just feels like a supporting role 
I agree. And I think they were smart to keep her in supporting because then it ensured her getting a nomination. I think if they tried to push her in lead, she would have been pushed out because agreed. <laughs> um, who was who got nominated for supporting that year at the Emmys? So supporting, that was our two from Feud, which was Judy Davis and Jackie Hoffman. Oh, yeah. Our two from Big Little Lies, which was winner Laura Dern, who won everything that season. Michelle lost to Laura Dern for everything. (laughs) And then Shailene Woodley was uh, the other one from Big Little Lies. And then we have Michelle and Regina King. Okay. What a great category, to be honest. I mean, yes. Even though I'm not, um, Shailene Woodley is just fine in Big Little Lies. Good for her. (laughs) Um, I really am thrilled for those two few nominations. And then always happy to have Regina King. Yes. Nominated, winning, whatever she wants to do. But I'm glad that Michelle got in there because it seemed like the film just kind of got kind of some main ones like best TV movie and then nominations for Robert and Michelle. And then I think for casting as well. It only didn't get that many. No, it it only got those four. It really had to kind of push its way in there. And I think that's just the wild nature of some of the awards groups that do television awards Mm -hmm. is some of them Like SAG, De Niro got a SAG nomination. Michelle did not because at SAG, they don't have supporting categories for television, which is wild. Yeah. So exactly like you said, there was no room for Michelle at the SAGs because everyone from Big Little Lies and Feud had to get into the SAG category, the one female SAG category for television. Mm -hmm. But then you had her getting in at the Golden Globes, like we said, which nominated no supporting actresses from Feud. So you had the repeats of Laura Dern, Shailene Woodley, and Michelle. And then you had Anne Dowd from Handmaid's Tale and Chrissy Metz from This Is Us. Oh, because they lump it in just supporting actress on any TV. Yes. Golden Globes are, if you were a supporting performance in TV, no matter what, you go in here. I'm glad she got into the Globes as well, um, because that's, it doesn't feel like they could have just rounded it out with Judy Davis. That's yeah, the one. Or... That's the one I was floored was not there was Judy Davis. Yeah. But again, with Michelle's track record with the with the Globes, you know, not surprising that she finds her way in there. Yeah, I wouldn't have expected Jackie Hoffman. Love Jackie Hoffman, but you know, I don't know if she would have been made the Globe shortlist. Just seems like they rely so much on prestige and name. Especially, like we said, for that just one all-encompassing supporting performance from TV. <laughs> then you had you had her getting nominated for supporting at Critics' Choice. Satellite Awards was the only place where she was nominated for Best Actress rather than Supporting. Mm-hmm. And then, like we said, she missed out on SAG, but that was because you had just that category and a uh, female in a miniseries or television movie it was nicole laura reese from big little lies and jessica lang and susan sarandon from feud mm-hmm. as you would expect <laughs> so 
yeah, I think, I don't think I would have given her the award for this. I think definitely a nomination, but. I mean. What about you? Would you have? I have not seen the Regina King performance in American Crime. Of those other five, Michelle would probably be fourth for me above Shailene Woodley. Although depending on which, I can never remember how they submit for miniseries, if it's episode-based or for the entire whole. Yeah. Because depending on the episode, I may put Shailene Woodley fourth and Michelle last. Mm-hmm. But again, I do think it's nomination worthy. She and Alessandra Nivola for me are the ones I left remembering. I most of you got a nomination. So I was surprised that I didn't see that on the on yeah. the list. So nomination certainly win, probably not. But as we've said more more times than we can probably count, that is not due to the work she is doing. That is just due to the fact that a lot of the other nominees in that category just have better written, more interesting roles and are executing them at the same top level of their game. Like it's an extraordinarily strong roster. Mm -hmm. And so if you're from that movie with the role that's somewhat underwritten and don't really have the same showcase that a Laura Dern or a Judy Davis or even a Jackie Hoffman in Feud has, Mm -hmm. you're just going to suffer by comparison. Yeah. So, yeah, we can we can ask this question. I don't think we've answered it too definitely. Would you recommend this movie? Um, I think as a, if you wanted to see, it feels more like a completionist recommendation to me. Um, you know, if you want to see her do a television performance, you know, do Wizard of Lies. Check that one out. See her reunite with Robert De Niro again. It doesn't, to me, it did not feel like required viewing. Hate to say, but did not feel like that entirely. Not to say that she's not, what she's doing is not great, but it wouldn't be my first like required viewing. What about you? Again, I feel like it has enough to where it is certainly watchable. Yeah. But I would never, I would never urge somebody to just throw this on because again it doesn't it doesn't meet my standard for why was this necessary yeah in terms of its storytelling and it is about two hours 15 minutes so it is it's an investment of your time most Mm -hmm. most certainly yeah michelle is michelle is doing good work but the role isn't quite strong enough for again that to be sort of the urge to put it on so I I would agree with you certainly not one to actively avoid but you're probably only going to put this on if you're feeling like you need a Michelle Pfeiffer-thon or uh, are just in that completionist mode I wonder if they'll show this in because eventually this the Bernie Madoff Ponzi scheme will be a bit of ancient history I wonder if this would be something that people would show in schools or that they would maybe would they maybe when you turn you more to the book than to this TV movie. I was about to say, I feel they'd read the book. I feel like they're, as you said, 60 minutes, every other sort of news journalism. I feel like they're 
go to the source. Yeah, copious more things that are real life to to go to 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 research this or show in class before you get to this movie. Yeah, I don't. I don't think this movie answers the question of why. Mm-hmm. Or, or book, or the what some of these various interviews could. R- right. I, I think anything you would want to be teaching in class, I don't think this movie answers for mm-hmm. you. So does that mean we are on to the six degrees of Michelle Pfeiffer? Yes, it is. All right. Lovely listeners. Six degrees of Michelle Pfeiffer is the game we end every episode playing. And that is where we give each other an actor or actress and we have to connect them back to Michelle Pfeiffer via other actors and actresses in six degrees or less. Michael, would you like to give or receive first today? Um, I'll receive first. Okay. So I was watching this and my TV is just above my little Criterion Blu-ray shelf. Mm-hmm. And uh, my eyes locked on an unmarried woman. So I am giving you Jill Clayburg. Oh God. Okay. Let's see. Well, I just thought of one, (laughs) another kind of one and done. Um, So Michelle is in mother with Kristen Wiig, who was in bridesmaids with Jill. I cannot believe you remembered Jill Clayburg was in Bridesmaids. Uh, I swore up and down you would not remember that Jill Clayburg is in Bridesmaids. She's got some great lines in that, doesn't she? Oh. (laughs) So sorry, honey. I I took my shot. I knew that was going to be the one thing if you remembered. (laughs) Uh, So your turn. Yeah. Mine for you is um, James Earl Jones. Mm. I looked over at my criterions and locked on Claudine. So. <laughs> we, were, we were both in that mindset today in our living rooms. Okay. Okay, I know he's voice only. Am I allowed to use Darth Vader as a connection? Sure, if you want to. It's so synonymous with him at this point. Like Because Michelle is in What Lies Beneath with Harrison Ford, who is in... Empire Strikes Back will use yes. <laughs> with James Earl Jones voicing Dark, Darth Vader. If in that case, you could also do like a, with Lady Hawk with Matthew Broderick because then he's in The Lion King. That's true. He's, he's the Simba to the Mufasa of James Earl Jones. <laughs> you connect all, you could basically connect the whole cast of The Lion King. Whoopi Goldberg, Nathan Lane, you could connect a lot of those people. Could you do Jeremy Irons? And you could do Jeremy Irons, but you could. You can do just... Jeremy Irons via um, Dangerous Liaisons. You've got your Glenn Close going to Reversal of Fortune. Okay. He's he's a one-off. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Look to the Lion King. We should have done Disney's Disney movies all this time. That could have saved us. Unlocking those doors at the last minute. <laughs> Next week is only voiceovers. That's... And on that note, Pfeiffer fans, this has been another episode of Pfeiffer Fridays. I'm Jerry Downey, and you can follow me on Twitter and Letterboxd at jerrydowney913. And I'm Michael McLean, and you can find me on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd at Michael D. McLean. 
You can find updates about the podcast by following us on Twitter and Instagram at Pfeiffer Friday. Please remember to subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts or whatever your preferred podcast channel is. It makes us easier to find so we can continue to spread the Michelle gospel to one and all. Thank you for joining us, and we will see you again next week for Pfeiffer Fridays. I'm sorry if I have questions, Bernie. I'm sorry if I'm a little scared, okay? It's just you always keep me in the dark. I keep in the dark to protect you. Yeah, well, it doesn't feel that way anymore. I just want to know what's going on. Please, Bernie, don't keep me in the dark anymore. Just tell me. Tell me.